everybody. How is the English team doing? What words can I use? It is the worst performance in the history of the World Cup. That is literal. It is the worst. Uh, of course, I'm not going to overreact. It's, after all, just a game. But I am renouncing my British citizenship. <laughs> now, if you're watching online from Britain, I was just kidding about that. I, I love the Queen. How about that monarch? All that good stuff. So, <laughs> so we are continuing our Little Big Books series. Uh, how many of you were here last weekend? Raise your hand if you were here last weekend. Last weekend... Pastor Scott did his, uh, delivered his first weekend message here at Timberline. I listened to it last night. I thought he did such an awesome job. Don't you? Round of applause. Oh, yeah. That was great. Well, he started uh, us our look at the book of Jonah, a uh, little big book, Jonah, and we're going to take another look before we move on next weekend uh, to another book. Jonah chapter 4, An Anger with God, is our is our message this weekend. So let's dive in, take a look. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. How many would prefer God to not provide a worm? Uh, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. For Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? It happened just after our daughter Kelly got her driving license. I helped teach her to drive. How many parents here would agree that there should be something in the Bible warning against that? How many? <laughs> it rideth not in thine daughter's chariot or something like that. And uh, she got her driver's license. We only had one family car. And so Kelly, our daughter, Richard, our son, were riding... Uh, around town and suddenly our phone rang and it was Richard he said dad we we need your help I said why what's wrong he said we've we've had a, we've had a little accident he said we've nudged another car <laughs> this is teenage language we've nudged another car he said this guy came out of nowhere we had the right away it's not our fault it's his fault and everyone's okay I've called the police. Would you like to just come over and help us out? 
So I, I got over there and uh, uh, I was feeling relatively calm until I got to the scene of the accident. There's this guy's car. You can see where he just come out of a side road. My daughter's there. She's crying. She's in shock. Rich is on the phone to the police. And I thought, just stay calm, Jeffrey. Stay calm. Adjust the octave of your voice. It's going to be okay. So I got out and I walked over and here, there's this guy. And I was feeling pretty good. And, and his opening words to me were, your daughter ran into me. Well, that was it. <laughs> Go ahead, make my day, baby. I said, I said, what do you mean? And then I realized that dogs nearby were hearing, hearing the call. So I, I sort of lowered the eye. I said, so what, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he said, your daughter just ran into me. And, and, and I, I, I immediately, I was, I, I, and I went into, what are you, your car? And, and, and my voice was a little loud, and the pitch was a little high. And, and, I, and I, I shared a couple of sentences, and then he, he looked at me and he said, I don't like you. <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm going to just sit in the car and wait for the police. I said, oh, okay, all right. So I'm standing there now feeling really stupid. And I thought, this is not good. This is not, I have not done well with this. I better go and apologize. So I went and, went and knocked on his car window for like a, like a mobile Jehovah's Witness, you know. <laughs> I, I said, uh, I said, uh, I said, hi, I said, it's me again, you know, guy you don't like. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said, I, I, I didn't do very well with that. And he said, he said, say no more. He said, I'm sorry too. He said, I, he said, I don't normally act like this either. And he looked at me and he laughed nervously. And he said, can you believe it? He said, he said, he said I'm a minister. <laughs> oh. Great, great. He said, what do you do? <laughs> I said, I'm a plumber. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I said, I said uh, well, actually, I'm a minister too. <laughs> he said, really? He said, what's your name? I said, it's a bit of an unusual name. Darry. <laughs> I, said, I, I said, my name's Jeff. So, Jeff what? I said, Jeff Lucas. I said, what? I said, Jeff Lucas. I said, Jeff Lucas. I saw you on Christian TV last week. <laughs> Great to meet you, Jeff. Praise the Lord. I'm thinking someone's going to show up with a guitar and we're going to sing Kumbaya on the side of the road here. What happened here, ladies and gentlemen, was that there was a moment of pressure followed by an ignition of anger and it really wasn't going very well at all. An explosive situation. Imagine this. An ignition, an explosion of rage and anger, but not between human beings, but between a man and God. His name, Jonah. Verse 1 says... But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. 
This is a Hebrew literary device. You're probably not interested in this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. There's a, there's a literary device. It's called a figura etymologia. Write that down. Go home and tell your friends. I learned this thing today at Timberline. Do you know what a figura etymologia is? I know they don't care either. A figura etymologia is a triple or double emphasis of a word to make a point. So the literal translation of this is, but it was anger to Jonah, great anger and he was angry. You see, the writer wants us to know that Jonah is definitely ticked. He is absolutely furious. One commentator translates this, Jonah boiled over with anger. And the writer here wants us to see the picture in its rawness, in its starkness. He is contrasting the fact that God is not angry. God, in Jonah chapter 3, has relented on his anger. He is not going to judge Nineveh as he had planned. But by contrast, there is this rage in Jonah. Jonah is angry in verse 1. God questions Jonah's anger in verse 4. Twice again in verse 9, Jonah is angry. You see, this beautiful chapter is a warts and all portrait of a man who is bunching his fists at God. He is mad. And there is no attempt to cover this or airbrush it or edit it. We are shown this man angry. Not only that, but something of the beauty of God is contained in this chapter as well. The old commentator G. Campbell Morgan said, people have looked so hard when they read the book of Jonah, they've looked so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And here we see an angry man and actually a beautiful God. So let's, let's dive into this if you're following along in the bulletin. Let's think about anger for a while. First of all, let's know this. God gets angry. God gets angry. And injustice should anger us. God gets angry, and injustice should anger us. Verse 2, it describes God as slow to anger, not petulant, not flying off the handle, but still anger, a component of his character. Now, many times in the Old Testament, there are references to God's anger. Psalm 78, they angered him, they angered God with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. When God heard them, he was furious. God is passionate. He gets angry. And we should too about the right things. Anyone ever heard the phrase stiff upper lip? Ever heard that phrase, stiff upper lip? It's a, it's a, phrase, that's, it's a phrase that's associated actually with the British. Right now there's a nation that wants to weep concerning soccer. But this idea of the step, step up a lip, don't you? Don't let the lip quiver. That would show emotion. God forbid. And we mustn't do that. No, no, we are dispassionate about the whole thing. In fact, it can be controversial. When Princess Diana died, there was despair in the nation because it seemed to the nation that the royal family were not displaying any emotion at all about her tragic death. And, and people were confused. And you're, you're never going to see Her Majesty weep. Because there is this sense that the stiff upper lip, it's the British way. I think some people think God's like that. Some kind of robotic person. 
who is not moved. In fact, when I was in Bible school in 1547, they taught us the doctrine of impassibility. The doctrine of impassibility means that God is not, he hasn't got any passions. He doesn't get moved. He is not affected. And I want to just go on record right now, I don't believe it at all. I don't believe it. I reject that part of my theological education. And I, I don't believe it for biblical reasons. Henry Melville said the reason most people fear God and many dislike him is because they rather distrust his heart and think he is all brain like a watch. But God shows himself in Scripture as being the passionate one, not moody or petulant or emotional power surges. God agonized over Israel, suffered with her suffering. The prophet Hosea, Hosea prophesied about a God to use his language, whose heart churned within him over his people. They provoked him. They grieved him. The Old Testament portrays God as being like a lover whose, whose partner has spurned them, like a, a husband with a cheating wife, Israel, like a compassionate mother moved for her children, ecstatic father of a returning wayward son over in the New Testament, the prodigal story. He's described as being grieved and pleased and joyful and, and moved by pity. I, I love the book of Zephaniah. Uh, in Zephaniah, we have this portrait of a God who, who sings and claps his hands and dances over his people. He is not the Victorian grandfather. Rather, he is the passionate one. And he gets angry. And the reason he gets angry is because he loves. God's anger... T.S. Eliot once said, is the unfamiliar name for his love. And I, I can almost hear someone saying, but I thought God loved us. Listen, anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference and hatred is the opposite of love. When you love somebody, you can be angry with them because you see that they are destroying and hurting themselves. I think we're living in a culture where we're so overwhelmed with information we can end up with compassion fatigue and we just don't get moved anymore. We just don't care. Eli Weisel, a survivor of the Holocaust, summer of 1944, taken to Auschwitz extermination camp and he survived. In 1999, he delivered a speech to the White House and he talked about the curse of indifference he said indifference can be tempting more than that seductive. It's so much easier to look away. It's so much easier to avoid such rude interruptions to our work, our dreams, our hopes. It is, after all, awkward, troublesome to be involved in another person's pain and despair. Yet for the person who is indifferent, his or her neighbor are of no consequence. And then he, he ended the speech by saying this, indifference, after all, is more dangerous than anger and hatred. We need to get our anger back about the bad stuff, about the injustices that are happening in the world. When our daughter Kelly came back from her first trip to Africa, she was broken-hearted. We picked her up at the airport. We drove her to our home. She needed to hop into the shower. She went into the shower. And I'm downstairs, and suddenly I can hear the pounding she is pounding the shower wall and she is sobbing uncontrollably because she suddenly realized that she could just flick a switch, turn the handle and clean water 
warm, hot water was hers. And she was angry because there are so many people in the world who don't enjoy that possibility. And every time they drink water, they risk terrible infectious diseases. We need to know that anger is not the enemy. The Bible says be angry and don't sin. God is passionate. We need to be angry about injustice. Do we still care? Secondly, secondly, grace can enrage us and anger can consume us. Grace can enrage us and anger can consume us. Verse 1, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Verse 3, now, O Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. And then verse 11, but Nineveh has, God says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? There are three things you'll hardly ever hear a preacher say. You'll never hear preachers say these three things. The first one is, the preacher doesn't normally say, let's not bother with the offering today. True? True? You don't often hear preachers say that, and there's a very good reason for that. And that is that our giving together as a Timberline family keeps what we're doing happening. We're grateful uh, to each other for that. The, other thing, the second thing you often don't hear a preacher say, or hardly ever, is this. We don't need any more volunteers. You don't hear that one. Here's the third one. I'm going to say it, and you might be shocked and surprised when I say it. Here we go. You ready? I am quite disappointed with Jesus. Some of you are going, run that one by me again. What? Now I want to ask you to listen really carefully because if you just take a sound bite of what I just said and you go out a little later for lunch and you're sitting around the dead chicken and you say, "Did, did, did the English guy say he was just disappointed with, yeah he did. So don't just take the sound bite. Listen carefully to what I'm saying, if you will. Otherwise, we're going to have a stoning, and that won't be good. You see, he's not been what I anticipated. When I became a Christian, I anticipated that I would have a hotline to God, crystal clear reception, easy guidance, a miracle a moment. I thought that when I went to start my car and the battery was flat, that I could just pray a prayer and somehow God would do the AAA thing. More seriously, I've watched friends walk through tragedy and apparently the tragedy has not been averted. He's not been all that I anticipated. He's also not been everything that was described to me. When I became a Christian, there was a version of the Christian life that was presented to me that made it that made it sound like I was going to just bump into angels all the time. Now, please understand, me saying I'm disappointed because he's not what I anticipated or not has, has been described, there's no criticism of Jesus there. It's just that my expectations were unrealistic. I had exaggerated descriptions. But I want to make another point. Jesus has always been disappointing. If you don't believe me, Ask the Pharisees. They wanted him to dance to their little religious tune. And he wouldn't. Interview the mother of James and John, Salome, who said, how about a throne for my boys, Jesus? And he turned her down. 
disappointing. The rich young ruler who wanted to navigate and negotiate a deal. No, that didn't work out. Talk to the Apostle Peter. Don't go to the cross, Jesus. Terrible idea. And what does Jesus do? He disappoints. He goes to the cross and he says, get behind me, Satan. You see, the truth is, God has a habit of being God. More about that later. But talk to Elijah, talk to Jeremiah, talk to Jonah. And you'll see that sometimes even the grace of God can make us angry, especially if God is being gracious to the wrong people. How many of you are with me? I want God to be gracious to me, but not quite so gracious to the guy that makes me mad. 300 volts would be good. (laughs) Hayam Lewis talks about the people of Nineveh. He says, these Assyrians, these Ninevites, were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless, power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They extinguished the northern kingdom of Israel. For Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. These people are getting away with it. And God is showing pity on them. And Jonah's mad. I remember once going to a kibbutz in Jerusalem, a community of people where everyone had sold everything and they lived in a sharing community. And they followed Jewish rules and regulations very carefully. We were having dinner with this lovely family and I turned to the man, the husband, and I said, so tell me about how you feel about God. He said, I hate God. I hate God. My grandson was born with severe disabilities. I hate God. I was grateful at least for his honesty. But he was able to express his struggle. Sometimes we find ourselves in the place where even grace can enrage us and anger can consume us. Can I ask this question? Are we angry with God and we're kind of afraid to admit it? Thirdly, we can get angry because of what I call the godness of God. We can get angry because of the godness of God. Jonah says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You see, these people hated the Ninevites so much. I don't want to be too gross. Pastor Scott mentioned it last week. They would skin people alive and then keep them alive. They were evil evil people. But Jonah knows what God is like. It's, it's interesting because he uses some beautiful words even as he's so mad with God. He says, I knew you were gracious. That word means to be moved when someone who is homeless does not have a coat to keep them warm. That says something about God. I knew that you were compassionate. The word there is associated with the word womb. It means motherly love. I knew you were slow to anger, that you wouldn't fly off the handle. I knew you were abounding in love. Loving kindness is another translation. I knew you were the one who relented from sending calamity. Here's the point. Jonah just couldn't cope with the idea of God being God. It's interesting if you study the book. Jonah thinks he's got God all figured out. When they're in the middle of the storm, do you remember that in the story? And they have to throw him overboard. The sailors on the ship, they say, 
Who knows? Maybe God will spare us. When Nineveh is told that there's going to be judgment, the king of Nineveh says, who knows? Maybe God will spare us. But Jonah's the guy who says, I know. I knew you. I think, brothers and sisters, there are times when we think we've got God all figured out and it makes us mad when he doesn't do what we want him to do. When unexplained things happen and we leap to slogans rather than answers, we fill in the blanks that God doesn't fill in. The philosopher Kierkegaard said that Christians are like schoolboys who want to look up the answers to their math problems in the back of the textbook rather than work them through. Again, I ask the question, are we mad because God didn't do what we wanted him to do? Fourthly, unresolved anger is the enemy of worship and community. Unresolved anger is the enemy of worship and community. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. Now, can can we just get this quickly? There's revival happening in Nineveh. Jonah has just preached one of the shortest and most effective sermons in the history of preaching. His sermon lasted seven seconds. How many would vote for sermons like that? An entire city repents. But what does he do? He marches off and he's sulking and he's sitting outside. He places himself outside of what God is doing, outside of those relationships, because he's mad. You know, I've discovered sometimes we get mad with God, but the trouble is there's no customer service line to call. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You have a problem with your cell phone. You've got... A helpline you can call. You press one for this and two for that and three for this and four for that and you listen to appalling music for four days. And then they come on and they have the security questions, don't they? And they say, what's your mother's maiden name? What's your pet's favorite color? I called up about our cell phone. The lady said, your wife is the name on the account, sir. I said, oh, okay. She said, is your wife with you? I said, yes, we've been together for over three decades now. Thanks for asking. She said, no, is she there? I said, yeah, she's here. And then this lady said this. She said, and you are your wife's husband, are you? I mean, everything in me wanted to say that Hebrew word. Da. The trouble with God is you can't call the toll-free number. What's going on? What are you doing? I want my money back. So you know what you do? The anger can spill into your friendships. The anger can spill into your marriage. The anger can spill into your church. In fact, here's what I found out. This is the reason why I don't have hair. What can happen is people get mad with God and they can't call him in the same way. I know we can pray. So what they do is they get mad with people that they associate with God, which is the preacher. (laughs) Great. Not that cool to be slapped on behalf of the Almighty. What happens is anger can break down our relationships. Is it possible that anger is threatening to take you out of that marriage, out of that friendship, out of this church? There are times when we need to maybe 
we're called to go to another church, but don't go, ever go to another church because you're mad. Because you know the problem with that? You get to take you with you. You're going to show up there and guess who's going to be there? You! <laughs> Anger, unresolved, can be the enemy of worship and community. Well, we've got a, a minute and 47 seconds left and two points, so I'm terrified. How about you? <laughs> Brace yourselves, people, because this is going to be a busy moment. Number five, God does not desert us in our anger. God does not desert us in our anger. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? He asks him questions. He says, what right do you have? The same question was put to Job. But he's patient. Last weekend, Pastor Scott put it beautifully. He said, even in my disobedience, God never stopped pursuing me. And here's a point I want you to see before we come to our final point. If you're angry, bring it into your prayer life. Don't fake it with God, because He knows. Don't make speeches that are hollow. He knows your heart. Philip Yancey makes the observation. He says, one bold message of the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. Read the Psalms and you'll discover that to be true. Let's be honest about our anger. But the last thing is this, number six. Sometimes our anger is less than noble. Sometimes our anger is less than noble and is more about our preferences. It's less than noble and it's more about our preferences. Verse eight, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. Oh, bless his little heart. Oh, Jonah, your sunshade has got messed up. And now you want to die because of it. It's really mature behavior. Sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, we think we're being righteously angry, but we're just irritated. Because they didn't sing that song that I like this morning. Or they sang that song that I don't like. You say, why are you mentioning worship first? Worship attracts consumerism. The first murder in human history was over the issue of worship and the tradition has continued. We can get fired up about that. They're not using my Bible translation. Uh, it's too hot in here. It's too cold in here. Someone is sitting in my seat. It's kind of the equivalent of my sunshade died. And it's about petty preferences rather than anything that is really important. Well, we come to the end of this story. You ever watch one of those movies where you think it's all going to be tied up at the end? And there's a question. God says to Jonah, have you any right? Shouldn't I care for this city? And you're just waiting for Jonah to answer and the end comes up on... Don't you hate that? The end comes up on the screen. You go, No! I turned to Kay, went up and I say, what happened? And she says, it's only a story, honey. What happened? Did God end the story with a question mark so that we might ourselves answer the question when we are angry with him? As we come to prayer in just a moment, in the earlier hours of this morning, I just discovered this, this story that I, I want to share with you about 
what could have been a potential burning anger but turned into a magnificent trust. In 1842, Joseph Scriven, an Irishman, graduated from Trinity College in Dublin. He'd fallen in love with a girl from his hometown and they got engaged and there were many preparations for the wedding. There was great excitement, very much in love. The night before the wedding, she decided to ride over on her horse to to visit her husband-to-be. As she came over a bridge, the horse bucked and threw her into the river, which was very turbulent and icy, and by the time they managed to recover her, it was her body. She died the night before their wedding. He was heartbroken and he emigrated to Canada. And there he met Eliza Roach some years later. Eliza struggled with her health, but they fell in love and they planned to marry. And for three years they had to keep postponing their wedding because of her illness. And finally, before they could be married, she also died. Back in Dublin, Ireland, Joseph's mother was very concerned. Her son had gone through such heartbreak. And so Joseph decided to write a poem for his mother that expressed to her that all was well, that he was trusting God. Many of us know that poem. This man, who had gone through such pain, wrote these, I'm sure, familiar words. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the unedited story of a man who struggled with you and with your purposes, with unanswered and unresolved questions. And as we read about his struggle, we thank you that you provided this for us in Scripture. I especially pray today for those who are wrestling with disappointment. The truth is, Lord Jesus, that there's nothing disappointing about you except when we want you to do what we want you to do rather than you ruling and reigning. Except when we put upon you our preconceptions, our false notions about what it means to be one of your followers. You never fail. You are faultless. We pray especially today for those who wrestle with anger with you. We pray that they will find grace. We pray for any here today who do not know you. You are awesome and wonderful, the rescuer. Pray that today hearts will be stirred, questions provoked, decisions made. 
agree. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. We're going to give now. Thanks, Timberline family, for your faithfulness in giving. We always say it every week. If you're a guest, you don't have to give. Just uh, put that connection card in. But a special announcement today. Uh, Many of you will know that today is Pastor Reza and Allison's last day uh, over at Timberline-Windsor campus. And uh, they are praying and celebrating and crying and uh, saying goodbye today. And they're having a love offering over there. And we felt we wanted to give uh, everybody an opportunity. If you want to make a gift to to that lovely family, express our love to them, just put that in the envelope. But please mark on the envelope. Uh, that is designated, just put Reza or yeah, just Reza on there, R-E-Z-A. Uh, if you're making any checks out, as usual, uh, make them to Timberline Church. Let's sing to the Lord, declare His greatness, and let's give together as well. second behind the scenes of Timberline story. How many would like to just normally when it's the offering time, if I'm preaching, I, I go over there and I go down the steps about five or six feet and just stand down there and then come back up here and do this. At the end of the first service this morning, I walked over there and I just stepped out there to go down the steps and behold, there was an abyss. And I almost dropped six feet down into a pit. How do you think that would be a pretty amusing way to end the service? Thanks for your support. Let's pray together. You're great, Lord. Some of us have declared that today, really feeling that. Some of us have declared that by faith. Some of that have declared some of us have declared that in the midst of grief and pain. Our declaration is. How great is our God. Take us now into this new week. Secure in that knowledge, we pray. We agree together in Jesus' name. Amen. Our prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, we would love to do that. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless you. You're greatly loved.